When I think back on my 43 years in the industry, I know that my moral compass kind of gets influenced by all the different things that you experience. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Amplify Horse Racing Podcast. Timothy Lateau here, but note before we start the show, this is the Horse Racing Hangouts edition. The Hangouts are Amplify's monthly virtual live stream that can be viewed in video form on Amplify's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. The original version of this aired April 20th and contained informational PowerPoint slides, so be sure to check that out to see the points presented visually. Now, here's our Executive Director, Anise Montplaisir. Hey everyone, and welcome to another horse racing hangout with Amplify Horse Racing. My name is Anise Montplaisir. I'm the Executive Director of Amplify which if you've never heard of Amplify, we're a nonprofit to educate youth and young adults about the thoroughbred industry. Uh, our monthly horse racing hangouts are essentially a virtual workshop to help educate people, whether you want to get more involved in the industry or actually pursue a career in the thoroughbred industry. These are some awesome, tangible workshops with excellent takeaway points where you can get out your notebook, take some notes and actually really learn something that can help you to advance your career or just simply advance in your knowledge. Or even if you're just seeking out some continuing education opportunities, this is a really excellent way of doing that. So for anybody out there that's eating lunch, you know, pull up your lunch, grab your notebook and um, get ready to do some learning because we really have an awesome presentation for you today. Our subject is horse racing ethics, which uh, I was really excited when I, I had approached the University of Arizona Racetrack Industry Program, which is going to be uh, our, our presenting group today, and asked if they would be willing to join us for a hangout. And when they proposed this topic, I was really enthused about it because it's an important subject to understand for anyone who wants to pursue further involvement in the industry. You know, many of us who got into thoroughbred racing probably did it for the love of the horse, and we want to be good stewards of the horse, good stewards of the industry, and continue to improve. And so it's important to understand the challenges and criticisms that are, are faced or that we face in the space of ethics um, in order to address them and continue to make a positive difference for the future of the industry. So today you're going to learn the definition of ethics, how ethics in the thoroughbred industry has evolved over time, uh, how the industry has addressed them, and, and really where we're at today. So before we really dive in, I also want to make a note on the age appropriateness of this conversation. Uh, Amplify has a pretty wide age range that we seek to educate, but I would say that today's presentation is going to be best suited for those who are in high school and college, you know, some of those older, slightly upper level students. This is going to be, I wouldn't quite say mature content, but we will talk about gambling along the way. We're going to be talking a little bit about um, equine welfare. So if there are any parents watching, excellent. Welcome. Just be prepared to maybe have some conversations with your kiddos about this info. So 
that's my note on age appropriateness. Today, as I mentioned, our presenter is with the University of Arizona Racetrack Industry Program. So we're really, really lucky to have Phil O'Hara, RTIP's Assistant Professor of Practice with us. And then also we have RTIP's Chair Robert Hartman, uh, who's going to be moderating the comments. So if you have any questions specifically about their program, how to apply, what kinds of students they accept, go ahead and send those in as well. We can answer a little bit of everything and anything. And Robert, hey there, thank you so much for being on with us as well. And so with that, uh, I'm going to share Phil's bio with you. When we have speakers, I don't usually read off their whole bio because it takes a little while. But again, because this is such a big in-depth topic, I really wanted to illustrate to all of you the depth of experience that Phil has to share in his own career in the thoroughbred industry. So Phil O'Hara has over 30 years experience as an executive in the thoroughbred racing industry in a wide variety of positions. Since August of 2020, he has taught classes for the racetrack industry program at the University of Arizona. Prior to joining U of A, he was consulting with industry organizations through his company, P.T. O'Hara Junior Services Incorporated. O'Hara served on the board of directors of the Daily Racing Forum's Parent Sports Information Group. He held the position of executive director of track partnerships and worked with the U.S. Trotting Association to integrate harness racing coverage and retail data on DRF.com. He served as the executive director and CEO of the Mid-Atlantic Cooperative LLC, a simulcast content buying cooperative. O'Hara was the president and CEO of Equibase Company, the thoroughbred industry's official database, a partnership between the TRA and the Jockey Club. He also served as chairman of Access Trackmaster, an Equibase subsidiary, which is a data and handicapping product retailer. Prior to joining Equibase, he served as Penn National Gaming's Executive VP, overseeing the company's paramutual assets, the racing segment of its business. O'Hara served as a director of the TRA for 12 years and was an active member of the 1995 and 2020 committees of the TRA. Before joining Penn National, O'Hara served in a variety of positions in the marketing and racing departments at several racetracks, including Tampa Bay Downs, Arapahoe Park, and Louisiana Downs. And he is a graduate of the University of Arizona's Racetrack Industry Program. So with that, welcome, Phil, and thank you so much for being on this horse racing hangout. Well, thank you, Anise. That was a that was a mouthful of all those things. I thought you'd just maybe pick a couple of them and and throw them out there, but uh, no, yeah, you have a great level of experience to be able as, to share with everyone. I think it's good to highlight that too, in case somebody has questions about your background, and to be able to kind of see your journey into the industry as well. Well, as you can tell tell by my beard, it's it's bright white now, and. Uh, before I did all those things in the industry, it used to be pretty dark. So you can tell I've actually uh, been in the trenches. Well, you, you have a lot of wisdom to share. You've seen many things. Uh, Phil, I guess before we really dive into the conversation itself, I would love it if you would give us a brief overview of the University of Arizona Racetrack Industry Program. You know, what, what does the program entail? What kind of students generally apply? So 
the program has has evolved from the time I went to school here. Uh, when I went to school here, we had four total racetrack classes. Uh, the equine program began the last year I was here, so I didn't participate in that. Uh, so there wasn't a lot of in-depth. Uh, but what we've always done well is we brought in experts from around the industry that actually share their experience and their knowledge with our students. Uh, type of students we get are, well, first of all, we have two tracks. One is an equine track, which predominantly is uh, students that want to learn about breeding programs. Maybe their aspiration is to operate a breeding farm, but we also have a lot of students that want to be trainers. Uh, we had a, a student that has interned with Shug McGahee up in New York uh, the last several summers, uh, who's graduating this year. And I believe he's going to spend a little time at uh, Claiborne this summer awesome. in, your in your neck of the woods. Uh, but we also have students that uh, interned last year with Delmar. Uh, we had a student that interned uh, in the racing department at uh, Saratoga and Belmont Park last summer. So uh, we provide that. But now the curriculum is probably about 20 classes um, on the racetrack. The people that want to be in the operation side of the business uh, we have about seven, eight classes that are, you know, basically soup to nuts of everything you need to know to actually go operate as a racing official in the racing department. Or, mm -hmm. you know, if you aspire to run a, a, a racetrack or one of the corporations that, you know, operate racetracks, um, you know, we have several students that are inclined or inspired to try to do something like that. Uh, but it, it, it evolves just like everything else. And uh, I think Robert will tell you, we've got uh, really bright young, young folks in our program right now. We're kind of excited to see how they do in the industry. That's awesome. I, I've met several uh, current students and former students of the program. And I, only have great things to say, and it really sounds like there are a wide variety of, uh, of students with um, different interests. They come from different parts of the country that uh, have found this program to be really well suited and, um, you know, laying the foundation of their education for the industry. So thank you so much for sharing about that. And, you know, moving into our presentation part of it, um, I'm going to kind of step out of the picture and just hand it over to you, Phil, because you're the expert on this. And it's interesting. Uh, thank you. Now I don't have to give a lot of my background. Uh, I would share a little bit about how I got started. Um, for me, I was a, a fan growing up. I think my dad probably started taking, I'm from Pittsburgh. So my dad started taking me to Waterford Park when I was nine or 10 years old. And that was my relationship with horse racing was going down and trying to handicap and pick some winners. Uh, when I returned from, from the Marine Corps, uh, a whole new world was opened up to me because my father had just bought uh, his first racehorse. Uh, anyway, the, the horses we had operated in the Maryland circuit and the general manager at the time's name was Chick Lang. His son was actually our jockey's agent. 
and I became close with him. He's the one that told me about uh, the University of Arizona. And honestly, from that first summer of being involved on the, on the uh, you know, really in-depth in the sport, uh, the, study, the study of ethics, at least partially the study of ethics uh, internally anyway, started. And I think if you talk to anybody that makes a career in racing, ethics and doing the right thing for horse racing is a cherished obligation that we feel. And we feel it uh, really deeply. For me, especially ethics, I have this like hyperactive sense of ethics. So I've actually changed jobs way more than most people. <laughs> um, and predominantly because I've run into conflicts with uh, certain certain stances, maybe the company I'm working for uh, takes that I don't necessarily buy. Uh, anyway, uh, doing the right thing may not make you as much money at, in the short term, but I'm a believer that over a course of time, your company will make more money when you're doing the right thing because you won't be uh, subjected to the, to the public outcries uh, that take place like when we have a rash of breakdowns or uh, you know some, some mistreatment of a horse on your backstretch or, or, or something like that. Anyway, so when I think back of my 43 years in the industry, I know that my moral compass kind of gets influenced by all the different things that you experience, right? Uh, anyway, nothing has more deeply affected my personal code uh, than the time I spent in Kentucky uh, which was about close to a, a decade, and especially seeing the way uh, the love of the horse by not just the operators of the racetrack at Keeneland or uh, Churchill, but not just the breeders at those magnificent farms, but pretty much everybody that lives there has this, you know, uh, real desire to make sure that we're doing the right thing uh, by the horse. And for me, with my experience in the overall racing game, I want to make sure we're doing the right thing, not only for the horse, but as well as the, uh, the jockey that rides the horse, the grooms that actually work with the horses in the daytime. And the people that bet on our races are looking for those things. Uh, anyway, but isn't that what we're supposed to do when we're, when we're actually exposed to something new? That's supposed to go into our our evaluation process, right? Of what we think is right and wrong and how we'd like to go. So anyway, let's just briefly uh, talk about ethics in general, right? So we've all been uh, raised to live by a moral code and that moral code originally comes from our parents, right? The way that our family raises us. As we encounter life's issues, we modify that code uh, to address more specialized matters, uh, kind of like uh, things that we run into on a day-to-day -day basis, right? Uh, anyway, uh, the more and more that we do 
revise this code, some of these things become a little ambiguous, raising internal conflicts. So it isn't always a yes or no or black and white issue for us. There's a lot of gray areas when we're dealing with ethics. Uh, but we're not, you know, we're not alone in this conundrum. Think of it, the branch of uh, ethics is also a branch of knowledge that deals with moral principles, right? So this has been being discussed since Aristotle and, and Plato back in the day. And to start with, when we started using the term ethics, it always included an analysis of truth, virtue, and logic. They were the components that made up ethics, right? Uh, and those, those uh, components and the principles of ethics they're contained in our deepest recesses, and that's who makes us who we are as individuals, right? Anyway, so uh, for me, it's always been pretty easy to determine what's ethical or what the doing the right thing is, because when you've been, you know, required to maybe go against or or in conflict with some of your moral code. Don't you always get like that queasy feeling in your stomach uh, to know? All that said, each person has an individual interpretation of what is ethical, right? Uh, this is true in medicine and we're seeing it in society today, right? There's a portion of the population that thinks that a woman has 100% control over her bodily functions, right? And then there's a portion of the of the a population that thinks that uh, the reproductive part of that should be controlled by government and laws, right? Uh, anyway, regardless of which way you stand, and I'm, I'm not taking this, you know, a, a position on either, we know that everybody has been raised to believe the things that they believe with regard to their ethics evaluation, right? Uh, Anyway, again, that evaluation is of your personal ethics and it's influenced by your upbringing and then various experiences that you encounter and then additionally societal pressures, right? So anyway, I got into the game in the late 70s. I had just returned from uh, serving in Okinawa with the United States Marine Corps. And I could tell you, my moral code then was very primitive, right? I knew the game from going to Waterford Park, which is a low-level racetrack uh, in the suburbs of Pittsburgh. Anyway, uh, my first introduction to real racing and being associated with racing as an insider uh, became, you know, something that I had to learn all of the, the accepted practices, right? So as a racing official, I'd be working in the racing office and we'd get a new trainer in and somebody would say, Oh, that guy, that guy has the best way to block uh, uh, leg pain by using certain medications that, you know, they're not testing for. And he was kind of like uh, a, 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 a hero to, uh, to people because he was able to win races with horses that were sore enough that they couldn't train for other trainers. And uh, he did win a lot of races. Um, I think eventually he was caught in uh, 
and and ruled off uh, of, of the the races but at that time it was not considered to be completely taboo right uh, owners in the in the claiming game if you don't know what claiming uh, races are horses are are actually uh, categorized by the value that we see they could they could operate in so if you have a $20,000 horse and you try to run for a 50,000 claimer, chances are you're not going to be competitive there, right? So you would have actually run at the level of uh, uh, competition that you can actually either win or get a check in your race, right? So when horses started to go bad, there may be a medical procedure like draining fluid from a knee. You drain fluid from the knee, knowing that you're not going to be able to do that every race. So you're going to drop your horse in and hope somebody else would claim them. This was actually perceived as a practice by a crafty trainer. If you had a really, you know, smart, crafty trainer, he'd be able to navigate that situation, right? And then some of the other practices were like, as a horse was declining in, in ability, uh, you know, a, a trainer may just try to get that last race out of the horse so that they could get another check, really looking after the owner's economic uh, interest, right? Um, and again, I'm not, I'm, not, uh, I'm not judging any of this. I'm just saying this is the way it was in the 70s. So jump forward another 20 years. The ethics of the early 2000s. We had several issues come up in the decade of the 2000s uh, that really started to wake the industry up. First of all, in 2002, we had uh, an employee of one of the Tote companies. By the way, Tote is the actual computer systems that process the wagers. Uh, anyway, this employee of the Tote company was able to get inside the pools, write his own tickets. Uh, for the for the Breeders' Cup Pick Six, and ended up cashing. I, I think it was about three or four million dollar worth of tickets, and he got caught only because there were so many long shots that day that he held the only tickets. I believe he had eleven, but I, you know, don't quote me on that. And as soon as it was identified that there was one location that had eleven winners and no other location in the country had any winners. Everybody got pretty suspicious pretty quick, and we caught the guy. Uh, but those were issues that we identified that we weren't doing a good enough job to protect our pools from people coming in trying to manipulate and and, and actually cheat the other betters, right? Uh, we also had some high-profile uh, bookmaker offshore illegal gambling uh, cases that came up. Some involved paying trainers to drug their horses to win. And they were actually caught again by the FBI. I believe there were 17 indictments in this Uvari IRG case. What they did was they took the bookmaking money that was being bet, dumped it into the U.S. pools through a rogue ADW in North Dakota. Uh, again, those are things that, you know, we really didn't take seriously until they happened, but we did address them after. So again, we're, we're evolving. Some really high profile horse racing issues also came up, right? 
the winner of the Kentucky Derby in 2006 was Barbaro, who was this magnificent animal. Uh, I remember being at the Derby that year, and when he came around the turn, you could see he fanned out wide and made the move. It was it was incredible. Uh, but two weeks later, he went into the gate at, at the Preakness as the prohibitive favorite for that race. He broke through the gate before the before the race started, went back around. They put him back in the gate, started the race. He made it about halfway down the stretch and right in front of the grandstand, had a failure of one of his forelimbs and uh, and actually was vanned off in front of, you know, close to 100,000 people that were there for the Preakness. Uh, the thing about Barbaro's incident was it was such a, a, a his his battle to survive to to overcome his injury was such a, a public uh, interest story for the next nine months that we followed every step seven eight nine months something like that that we followed every step of Barbaro's try to get to recovery. The owners spared no expense in in vet care and and trying to save him, uh, that the country actually kind of got behind him. But just about two years, a little less than two years later, on Kentucky Derby Day, we had this magnificent three-year-old filly as she was pulling up after a race on Derby Day 2008, shattered both her four, front forelimbs. Uh, and that was probably the most immediate public outcry that I can ever remember in horse racing. And uh, I would say within a week, the industry decided we really need to, to dig deep in on this. How are we going to adjust this so that our industry gets back uh, in the direction that we want it to go, right? So anyway, we had this vast industry awakening in response to this. And so what it, what had happened was, I would say within a week of, of the of the breakdown of, of eight bells, we had safety committees popping up all over the country. Sure, California had some to address their issues. The Jockey Club Safety Committee started, uh, you know, shortly thereafter. And then in Lexington, the NTRA started to convene industry-wide safety committee meetings. And, and I was lucky to serve on uh, a committee that started probably a week after the Derby. And we, we got into the brass tacks about a lot of things. Uh, so funniest thing is, it, within a couple weeks of the Derby, the horse that won the Kentucky Derby's name was Big Brown. He was trained by, you know, one of one of the most gifted, talented horse trainers that we've seen, at least in my generation, uh, Richard Dutrow. But he was being interviewed on on uh, national TV by Bob Costas, who anybody that follows sports knows uh, Bob Costas's uh, stances in sport and ethics in sport. You know, he brought the steroid issue to baseball. He took them on. He brought the concussion issue to football. He took the NFL on. Uh, 
So he was interviewing Richard Dutro, and we were talking about eight bells. Somebody was surmising that eight bells was using steroids. Uh, and, and at the time, steroids were legal. So no, no criticism of Larry Jones, because that was the ethics of the day, right? Steroids were actually allowed. Richard Dutrow on that national uh, conversation actually said, my horses all get their steroid shot on the 15th of the month. And I would say shortly thereafter, there was an outcry that we needed to address the medications that were going into our horses. Anyway, so in response to this, we had significant changes that happened to permissive medication. Steroids were almost outlawed by the end of the year, which, you know, at that speed is unheard of trying to get 38 states to agree to that, right? Uh, the outcome of all of these safety meetings, and especially the NTRA uh, orchestrated meetings, we developed our first ever code of safety and integrity standards. A lot had to do with medications, but we also had a lot of things at the racetracks that we thought could be done better. And we created a standard of safety accreditation uh, for each of the racing venues around the country as well. And then lastly, the TRA tracks, which actually own a company called the TRPB, which is an investigative uh, part of the company, uh, actually created requirements for anybody wagering into our pools to have to undergo a due diligence investigation. Uh, that would have restricted access for any outliers that wouldn't go through that. So now we know we've at least taken steps to protect against one of those betting scandals as well. So anyway, what are the premium ethical issues in racing? I always think of them as the two things that we use to regulate the sport, right? Uh, our sport is highly regulated. Every state has their own racing commission and they create the rule formats for each state. And by the way, they've been different. If you go to Kansas, which I don't think they race anymore, but if you go to uh, Kentucky, their rules are gonna be different than West Virginia. They're gonna be a little different than Pennsylvania and they're gonna be a little different than Florida, right? But regardless, we're, we're tasked to regulate the industry in, in a fair fashion. And the two things we really regulate or the reason we regulate is safety of all the participants, right? Uh, so we wanna have the state-of-the-art safety requirements for the equine athlete from the time they're foaled, right? Actually, probably from the time they've been in the in gestation, because we want to make sure those things uh, are, are safe for the, the broodmares themselves, right? And then once they're foaled, we want to make sure that no unethical surgeries are going to be hidden from any prospective owner of that foal going forward, right? Uh, it, with regard to the auction, do we think it's right for uh, somebody that's prepping a horse for an auction to use steroids to build that horse's body out just so that its appearance can bring more dollars? Probably not, right? As a matter of fact, you certainly don't want the muscular part of the horse to outgrow the skeletal part of the horse, right? Their genetics 
or make it so that those two parts are supposed to work together. Uh, additionally, we want to make sure that training and racing uh, metrics are followed so that we're taking care of those animals, right? And then lastly, in retirement, think of it. Most horses in horse racing race at two, three, maybe four years old. So, uh, many go on beyond that, but the predominant number of horses are done racing at the age of three or four. We need to find a way for them to enjoy a you know, satisfactory, uh, productive life the rest of their, their life. So we really had to take on you know, issues of retirement, rehabbing, retraining, uh, and all those things. And in the in the in the same time, we needed to create medication protocols so that everybody knew what the right thing was, right? Uh, with regard to the human participants, not just the jockeys on the back of the horses, but we also have grooms and trainers and other people that work with the horses all the time, right? We want to make sure that those backstretch facilities are as safe as they can be. You know, things like walking around the corner of a barn. If you don't have a mirror up in the corner of the barn to see there's a horse acting up, you might just walk into the back of that horse and get kicked in the face. Those type things, we, we wanted to distribute best practices. We wanted to make sure that uh, accreditation would check on all those things and then let that track catch up to speed and make sure that they were they were performing those best practices. And then we also wanted to make sure our surfaces were safe, right? So we've done all kinds of testing on the surfaces because if in fact your track isn't keeping data on, on what went into that track or what came out of that track, what was the composition of the material the horses were running on? Uh, just an example, if you have too much clay, you get a lot of rain, guess what? Your track is going to be sloppy for a lot longer period of time. If you don't have enough clay in the track to hold the moisture in and it's too sandy, guess what? That track is going to break away from those horses' uh, hoofs when they're, when they're landing on it. But also there are better kind of rails that we can use to protect both the horse and the, and the rider. And then the, just the simple maintenance things that you, you conduct at the track every day. Grooming horse, pa horse pass after a thunderstorm, especially... If you're on a terraced backstretch and that water starts running down, you're going to have washouts on that horse path and somebody's going to take missteps in those, right? Um, but also the other thing that we really regulate is the integrity of the contest, right? We, we regulate medication issues for the conduct of the race as well, right? We also regulate that same thing with the, with the conduct of the riders uh, during the race. And then we also regulate that contest with the wagering aspects and making sure that our wagering pools are secure and the race is being run fairly so that our customers have a fair shake to actually make those wagers. So no matter what you try to do, you're always going to run into conflicts, right? And anyway, those are called ethical dilemmas, right? An ethical dilemma is basically the difficulty in choosing between two courses of action. Either choice involves disobeying one of those closely held moral principles that you may have, right? 
So those are things that you have to do. You have to deal with those. So what are industry ethical dilemmas? Safety before else. And I think if you talk to anybody, especially an operator of the track, first thing out of their mouth is going to be safety before all else. But there's trade-offs due to costs, right? Uh, you know, we're just going into this new federal law and a lot of the small tracks are, 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 are are really troubled by the expenses that are going to be uh, that are going to be you know forced upon them that they may not be able to make it right. So safety before else is really there are trade offs due to cost for that right. And then at the end of the day, you know a horse could step on another hoof print in the racetrack, twist his ankle, and you know either catastrophically injure himself or hurt himself uh, to the point that you get off. Uh, foolproof security for racing medication policies. This is another one of those things that a trade-off for costs we're, we're looking at. And uh, just to let you know, we're, we've passed a law. Uh, as a matter of fact, I'll get to HISA in, in like another slider. So I have a little bit about that. Uh, talk about it. But anyway, the trade-off for uh, foolproof security of racing medication policies is we can, the best we can do is best practices, right? We have to have a way that we can test for all illegal medication. We have to have a way for when that test is completed, that whoever is illegally using medication needs to be held accountable for what they're doing. Uh, and those kind of things uh, are are all top of mind for the regulators and especially the racing commission regulators that currently are tasked for medication policies. I believe starting next week, it'll be under the new federal law uh, and the, the Horse Racing Integrity and Safety Authority, which again, I'll get to in a minute or so. Uh, the technology to identify pool co corruption instantaneously. So right now there is an office in Delaware or in Maryland uh, called the TRPB, and they have access to every transaction that is made on any U.S. racing uh, in the thoroughbred world, right? I think they have contracts in the, in the harness world as well, but I do know that the thoroughbred world they have agreements with uh, racing commissions as well as racing associations like Churchill Downs Incorporated, Penn National Gaming, uh, New York Racing Association, the Strunrek Group or First Racing. Uh, and right now they get access to all those transactions, but they don't have sufficient staff to be able to monitor, monitor that real time to prevent the the pool corruption, all they can do is track it down and investigate it and hold that person accountable at a later date. Obviously, if you had unlimited funds, you'd probably be able to do that. And then also tote companies, we have three major tote companies in, the, in this country. Um, they all each have a proprietary system of doing things. And their proprietary claims inhibit any free share of data for the general investigator to be able to look at. Anyway, so 
those are our dilemmas. So culturally speaking, now we go back to the ethics of the, the day. In 2019, we had a large amount of horse deaths in Southern California. And you know what? They had extreme weather uh, that was the culprit. Their racetracks are designed because they're semi-arid for most of the year where they get no rain at all. Their racetracks are designed to, you know, hold moisture. But when they got over abundance of moisture, it was hard for them to know exactly how that racetrack was was happening. And I'm not blaming the deaths on the racetrack. Uh, There there are a lot of things that go into that. Uh, But every day a horse died in there, once it became a national story, every day a horse died, there was more outcry about stopping racing in California. Senator Dianne Feinstein actually recommended this may be the end of racing and we need to consider outlawing, uh, you know, racing in California. Jump forward another year and the Navarro service indictments. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with those, but they were the two leading trainers at Monmouth Park. Along with them, there were 27 indictments for using illegal drugs as performance enhancing uh, drugs that they were treating horses with and they were winning. And think of it, Jason Service won the Kentucky Derby the spring before on maximum security. I mean, he was was disqualified, but his horse actually won that. He had just finished winning the Saudi Cup, which is a $20 million race in Saudi Arabia, a month before these indictments came out. Anyway, we also identified a lot of illegal betting and pool manipulation that was occurring into the pools that was not transparent because they weren't actually betting into our pool so much. They were fooling around and trying to cash bets uh, with the illegal bookmakers offshore. So it was kind of disguised to most of the regulators weren't aware of it, but now we are, right? So in response to that, in response to that, we had an outcry. It led to federal legislation known as the Horse Racing Integrity and Safety Act, which created an authority called the Horse Racing Integrity and Safety Authority. The goal was to create uniform rules for all the thoroughbred tracks that nationally distribute their simulcast signal. That is the only federal intervention that could be made was to disrupt interstate commerce from happening because all about horse racing is local. It's all within your state with the exception of the interstate commerce that is conducted uh, through simulcasting of the races around the country. Uh, Anyway, so HISA then created safety rules They followed along the lines of those code of standards that I talked about after the response for eight bells, but they've ratcheted down some of these things to make it even safer for our participants. They're, they're, I believe, poised to begin their anti-doping and medication rules as of next week, or maybe the week after the Derby, I think they're talking about. Uh, I'm not exactly sure, but... So the authority has actually hired some of the best people in the industry. 
They've got people on the board from the NFL doping policies to the uh, to the operators of or ex-operators of racetracks uh, to people that are politically connected. Uh, Governor of Kentucky, Steve, ex-governor of Kentucky, Steve uh, Bashir is on that on that board, and they're all looking to do the best thing uh, for thoroughbred racing with the goal of making thoroughbred racing's longevity be a reality for us. Because I will say it, a response to a lot of this thing and a public outcry, if it occurs, could be devastating in a lot of states. Uh, anyway, they also identified issues about aftercare when the racing career is completed. And, you know, uh, places like, uh, or, or organizations like Amplify can only be helpful in distributing this message. So, it, so it's great in that way. So that's kind of my, my, my story today. Did want to share with you a little bit of, uh, a little bit of parting thoughts. Um, anyway, I have, a, I have a few notes that I haven't been following through the, through the presentation. So let me grab a hold of those. So first of all, Haiza has has actually supposed to have been in effect since last July 1st. Uh, but certain participants in the industry feel that it's unconstitutional for them to intervene in the regulation of the sport because primarily it's always been a state's issue, right? So anyway, it's been held up and I have a feeling that it's going to be uh, out of the court system uh, within the next week or two, but may may continue. I don't know that for sure. But if HISA is eventually ruled constitutional, you know what? This industry needs to embrace the new reality, right? And we need to make it work, whether that be through a collaboration of the overall uh, or a collaboration within the industry or an actual overhaul of some of the initial regulations that HISA came out with, but anybody that's participating within our industry really needs to weigh in on this argument so that we make our regulations work fairly for everybody and make sure that those regulations create a level playing field for both the races, all the participants, and the customers that bet on our races as well, right? We need to proactively really protect our courageous uh, racing animals, make sure they're treated and cared for from the time they're, they're fold all the way through their retirement, right? Our industry will be evaluated every time we have a high profile issue uh, that arises, right? Uh, Social acceptability is probably one of the biggest vulnerabilities that this industry has. I mean, I, I've heard the comment about the social license to operate. Well, I don't think that's just a talking point. If you look at the greyhound industry, it has basically disappeared and it's disappeared for more than just societal issues. Uh, they didn't have the revenues that thoroughbred racing has. So there's an economic component to it disappearing, but they were actually voted out by referendum out of most major greyhound racing states. Uh, 
to the point that right now there are two racetracks that race greyhounds operating and they're both uh, in the state of West Virginia. So one of the other things that I think that we really need to address is, uh, is our, our youth movement and the lack thereof, right? Our fan base is aging. And for us to do better, we need to find ways to, to interact with that fan base of the Gen Zs and the millennials. And if anybody doesn't think animal rights is top of mind for these generations, you're kidding yourself. They're raised to be uh, animal rights. I don't want to say activists, but definitely supporters. And we have to make sure that we're doing that. And so these are the things that I think are crucial for uh for us in addressing ethics and having a real industry ethics policy. Anyway, thank you, Anise. That was, uh, it was fun sharing with you. Excellent presentation, Phil. I really appreciate that. And I think it was such a great, uh, it, it was very well outlined in giving history on how ethics have evolved over time and that, you know, 30 years ago, what was what would be considered unethical today was, you know, like you said, was not taboo in in that era. And so, um, you know, for young people to be able to understand the history and evolution of ethics and to have an understanding of the efforts that the industry is making today to make a change um, for the betterment of the safety and welfare of both horses and humans in the sport is such an important topic. No question. No question. And and the whole thing is, is you have to realize how progress works, right? You don't get to where you want to be in a day or, or with one change. It's step by step by step. And so we need to be at a point where we have dialogue between all of us that actually addresses these issues and makes them better. We have to get better and better and better. And you know what? Uh, I, so I, I love the people that I've been associated with in this business. Uh, and I respect the fact that they're all looking out for the best interest uh, of the business, the horses, the riders, uh, and our fans. There's definitely a lot of effort and research being put into all of these issues. And another, you know, piece that I want to share with audience members out there, you know, something interesting to look into if you're looking to further your knowledge on on the space of equine welfare and some of the research that's being done, checking out the Grayson Jockey Club's Welfare and Safety of the Racehorse Summit recording. You can find that on YouTube. The last summit took place last year in 2022 and really provides an amazing overview of research that's being conducted to help, you know, improve welfare of the horses, of our jockeys. And so again, just another little continuing education plug out there. And I want to let people know this is your last chance to ask questions of Phil live. If you're watching the recording, uh, you can certainly still send in your questions and comments and I will do my best to circle back and get those answered. But, you know, Phil, one thing I found really interesting, you mentioned the really how regulated the industry is. And I think that's something a lot of young people don't realize. Um, 
like when I do a lot of behind the scenes tours at, at racetracks and um, at Keeneland College Scholarship Day, I take students into the paddock and into the winner's circle. And I always try to point out the racing officials. And I explain, you know, this person is the horse identifier. They're scanning this horse's identifying microchip. This is the paddock judge. They're ensuring that all of these horses that are heading out to the track are wearing the equipment that they said they'd be wearing. So even all of those bits and pieces along the way that, you know, a newcomer to the sport might not understand all go towards ensuring the the safety and integrity of the industry. And I do see we have a question from Miss Rachel Wagley. She was one of our mentees last year. Will we be seeing any changes in this year's Derby due to HISA and the phasing out of Lasix? Well, so the, so the good thing is, do you want me to answer that? Yes, please, because you're you'd be the expert on this. So the good thing is, is the Lasix and the Derby doesn't have to rely on HISA because all graded stakes. If you want to participate in a graded stakes, you can't use Lasix, and so the Kentucky Derby will not have Lasix in his sources. And HISA, while it, it has a prohibition of Lasix, that's been put on pause for a three-year study to make sure that if they're able to find out that Lasix is actually better to treat EIPH than no Lasix at all, it, that prohibition may be uh, overturned in three years. Uh, so there will not be any Lasix in the Kentucky Derby this year. Great question, Rachel. Thank you very much for asking that. Anybody out there who's not heard of EIPH before, that stands for Exercise Induced Pulmonary Hemorrhage. And uh, another good thing for somebody to have a Google about, or Phil, I don't know if you want to go ahead and explain that as well. Um, so, you know, horses, the way they run and their back legs go up against their bellies, it pushes everything into their lungs. We believe that most horses have little micro fractures of some of the, the, uh, the lung tissue that allows for bleeding into the lungs. If that becomes severe, horses can actually bleed significantly. And sometimes you'll see a horse come back with blood running down its nose or even in the worst cases where a jockey's white pants will be covered with blood. Uh, those horses are obviously in distress. Lasix has been used to treat that since the late uh, mid to late 70s. Um, and, you know, it, it has worked. There's, there's a lot of opponents of the use of Lasix because we're saying horse can't race without drugs. Does that make uh, an ethical statement about racing if we're saying a horse needs, to, needs drugs to race? Um, you know, that's, that's part of the discussion that we're going through right now. Mm -hmm. Oh, great explanation. And you know, again, for audience members out there, this is, this would be a great presentation to step away and, you know, look at some of your own motivations and think about what you feel is ethical, you know, what issues really speak to you and, and being really well read and also well spoken as as an ambassador of the industry on some of these things, because if you're going to work in racing, you will undoubtedly have questions presented to you by friends, family members, you know, people that you interact with that aren't directly connected to the sport. And these are all 
uh, issues that uh, or questions, I should say, to, to have your own thoughts and, and well-educated response to. So, Phil, thank you very much for today's excellent presentation. It's great. Um, I hope everybody enjoyed it. Awesome. And I know how people can find you if, uh, if they have follow-up questions. So if anybody wants to reach out to Amplify, we are at info at amplifyhorseracing.org. And I can certainly pass those questions along to and Phil mug, and to Robert. My mugshot is on the RTIP website at the University of Arizona. There you go. If you want to read up again on, on Phil's bio, you can certainly do that. And uh, we will be having some posts over the next couple months of student testimonials and facts about RTIP. So audience members can certainly follow those to learn about the program or head to the University of Arizona Racetrack Industry Program to learn more. And with that, Phil, thank you so much and, and have a great rest of your day. Thank you. Great, great to spend time with you. Thanks so much. And thank you to all of you for tuning in to this episode. Um, it was certainly a, a very in-depth uh, episode. And so it, again, I really encourage you if you have follow-up questions, if you need clarification on any of those points, or maybe even consider re-watching the episode to um, you know, be able to absorb more of the material because it certainly is a, a very deep conversation to be had. And there has been a quite an evolution over time in the industry when it comes to ethics. So I'm thrilled that we were able to present this episode to you. We do not have a date set for our May episode. That's going to be coming out soon. So we'll be announcing our May horse racing hangout within the next couple days, I'm hoping. And the topic of that is going to be mental health in the thoroughbred industry. So we're actually going to be talking about, you know, what what are some of the challenges presented by the industry that can affect the mental health of our workforce? You know, this is especially a good thing to consider if you are part of the workforce. What are some resources that you can actually access that are close to you? Or even if you're considering working in the industry, how can you access mental health resources? So we're going to be sharing some uh, amazing speakers, some incredible resources, and some really great takeaway points. So stay tuned on that. everyone as our follow-up to our most recent horse racing hangout episode that featured the University of Arizona racetrack industry program and talking about ethics in horse racing we wanted to invite the RTIP chair Robert Hartman to join us for a quick segment to talk about enrollment to the program their facilities some of their famous alumni and more so welcome Robert thank you so much for joining us oh thank you for having me so tell us a bit about the enrollment process for the University of Arizona Racetrack Industry Program. How do students seek you out to enroll and what is the process for them to apply? Yeah, we've really simplified it. It, it just requires uh, applying to the University of Arizona uh, and all that information could be found on our website, which is RTIP dot arizona dot edu so essentially racetrack industry program right rtip dot arizona dot edu and uh, there's a section on there 
that talks about becoming a student. And the deadlines are fairly soon uh, for this coming fall. Uh, the deadline um, for fall 2023 is June 2nd for first year students, students that have not attended college before. And for transfer students, they give you another month, uh, which is a July 3rd uh, deadline. So that's for fall 2023. Obviously, students could enter in spring of 2024 or fall of 2024, and those deadlines, you know, are, are further away. That's great. So people still have some time to apply by the time this episode goes live, which is awesome to hear. And if somebody wants to actually meet with you or tour the facility um, and the, the program facilities, how could they go about doing that? Yeah, so on our website is is our phone number. That's the easiest way to reach out to us. Um, I'll, I'll give it to uh, those that are viewing this as well. It's 520 621 Five six six zero, and that's right here directly to our offices, and, and we give tours all the time, both of the racetrack uh, program offices and uh, the, the campus as well. I also, for folks that are that are interested in in enrolling and and maybe not for this fall, I want to give them a free invite to the global symposium on racing. Uh, so if, if they want to go through the application process and are planning to become a student, they can attend our symposium, which, as you know, Anise, I think you may be coming this year, actually. Is that is that still happening? Yes, yes, that is happening. I'm planning on it. And Caitlin, yes, you were there I'm last there year, every weren't year. you? <laughs> That's awesome. Now, I'm really excited to go for the first time, and, and I've heard really great things, and you guys always have an incredible lineup of speakers and industry representatives. So I think that would be a, an amazing opportunity for somebody to take advantage of. Yeah. So listeners of this podcast that, that want to become students, uh, it's a $550 value uh, to, to that, that's how much it costs to, to attend this symposium. So uh, it's free uh, for those people that are listening that want to enroll. Uh, they could reach out to, to you, Anise, or reach out to me. And um, we'll get them. We'll get them all set up. So that may be a good time to come to Tucson, um, and either before the symposium or after the symposium, um, you know, meet with meet with folks here and uh, check out the. Camp. Yeah, that is. I mean, I love the symposium. Like I said, I've been going for a really long time. Um, I. I mean, that's a. I would definitely take you up on that if I were uh, looking to become a student. That's an awesome opportunity. Tell us about some of your famous grads, Robert. Yeah, so we've been around for 50 years. Um, 2024 will be our 50th anniversary. So we, we have some some history. So uh, you know, trainers like Bob, Bob Bafford and Todd Pletcher uh, graduated from the program. Uh, executives from the East Coast to, to the West Coast, whether it's at uh, Keith Dolichel at, at the, in the racing office at Naira or um, Jason Egan runs the racing office out at Santa Anita or Chris Mers in between at, at Canterbury Park. Uh, we have graduates essentially at every racetrack, front side, uh, back side. So our network is really important. And the hands-on opportunities that we provide students, whether it's with field trips, we just got back from, from a three-day field trip at Santa Anita, 
to internships. We really pride ourselves. In fact, an internship is a requirement of graduation um, because we really want that experiential learning. Um, to guest speakers, uh, we've had great guest speakers this semester, Lisa Lazarus from HISA, Mike Ziegler from Churchill Downs, uh, just really, really super, super folks that, that want to help educate the next generation of uh, racing. And leaders. Robert, you mentioned internships. What kinds of like internships have students been able to get? Yeah, so just, you know, in the last year or two, uh, we had interns go to Del Mar Thoroughbred Club. Uh, we had interns go to the New York Racing Association. On the um, horse side, we've had um, an intern go to Lane's End Farm last year. Uh, trainer Shug McGahey uh, takes an intern every year. Um, Wyoming Downs took an intern. Arizona Downs took an intern. So we, we really cover the gamut from internships. Uh, so that's pretty, it's pretty cool. And the students don't just make copies and file. I mean, they work, you know, and they, they put their education into practice. So it's, it's really impressive how much they can contribute as a student and how much the uh, racetracks let them do. And, and when I was, uh, a student myself here, I interned at Naira and, and I did everything from helping them to write marketing plans uh, to handing out t-shirts. I mean, I did, I, I, I ran the gamut, but they included me in all of their meetings and, and I felt part of it. And team. I have to make a, uh, a somewhat of a plug here, but you can see all of the amazing experience that students at RTIP get on their social media platforms, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Um, we help along with the students. The students actually get hands-on experience in social media and digital marketing. They help us uh, cover all of their events and their doings. And it's something that we uh, we love working with you guys, Robert. Yeah, no, it's great. And, and you're right, they, they do gain that practical experience uh, of, of posting and, and how often to post and what information to post so that they're learning a lot by, by working working with you. And the other thing that we have that's very helpful to students is our local racetrack, uh, Rideau Park. Uh, so I would say we probably had over a dozen students working there and they ran the place. I mean, uh, a recent graduate was the assistant general manager. Uh, a current student was a paddock judge. Um, another student ran the racing office. Another student was uh, um, in the placing uh, department. So it's incredible, uh, again, how much they could contribute at, uh, at such a young age. And having, you know, a small racetrack like that as a, you know, is such an asset to the school because, you know, myself, I didn't, I'm not a graduate of the program, but having grown up in an area where I gained experience at a small racetrack, you're really able to get your hands on everything. And it's such an amazing, immersive experience as opposed to, you know, one of your first racetrack learning experiences being at one of the, the bigger tracks. You know, you can get started at a place like that, do a bit of everything. You're in a, a really positive learning environment with your fellow students and 
I think I even saw one of your students was uh, was calling races. Is that correct? Yeah, Nathan Klein is uh, is one of our students. So he called one race a day there, which led to calling full a couple of full cards um, at Turf Paradise, and uh, you know will lead to bigger and and better opportunities. So it's great to have that that practice. Others, uh, Pete Aiello, who calls at Gulfstream. Um, Park got his start at Rito as well, one of our graduates. Uh, the late Luke Krybosch, the same thing, started at Rito Park and then went on to, to call um, at Churchill. Um, so pretty amazing kind of the, the, the heritage and, you know, and history of, of our graduates. And I do have to give credit to Mike Weiss, who's the general manager um, at Rito and, and went to the RTIP. He's the one that 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 affords the students these opportunities at Rito, and and uh, we had a student talk to him, and she said, you know what, I'm interested in photography and horse racing, and he's like, we'll be our track photographer, come out there, yeah. and now uh, Lexi works for Cody Photography. Uh, she worked at Arizona Downs last year, and I believe she's working at Canterbury uh, this summer. So it, it's just amazing how that one opportunity that Mike gave to a student has now led to a career and in horse racing photography. Well, that is so cool, Robert. And I can say even in the last two days, yesterday I was on a call with um, two graduates of the program from New York. And today I was on a call with uh, one of your graduates who's an Amplify board member. So the, the impact of RTIP is certainly far and wide across the industry. Thank you so much, Robert. Again, that was Robert Hartman, the chair of the University of Arizona Racetrack Industry Program. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Amplify Horse Racing Podcast. Be sure to check out our website, www.amplifyhorseracing.org, and follow us on social media on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube for more of our content. If you have any podcast ideas, please email us at info at amplifyhorseracing.org. We'll catch you next time.